lithium ha- is, is an amazing drug in the following uh, way. It relieves the symptoms of what were the major causes of morbidity and mortality throughout much of human history. The white middle class reformers took on a, a reform crusade to try to improve the behavior of these people whom they felt were engaging in what they called vicious behavior. It's no accident that the drugs singled out for uh, banning were drugs that were associated with specific uh, social groups that were discriminated against by mainstream white uh, Northern European descended Americans. Hello, and welcome to the History of Drugs in Society, where we explore the history of different substances and how we've lived alongside and interacted with them. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. In this bonus episode, I got to interview historian, author, and Professor Emeretta from Carnegie Mellon University, Carolyn Acker. We mainly talk about her book, Creating the American Junkie. We touch on a range of subjects, including the beginnings of vice, the changing nature of medicine and pharmaceuticals, the beginnings of prohibition, the search for a non-addictive opiate, and lessons that we can learn from the first half of the century for the challenges we've been facing with drug overdoses more recently. I did ask her a few questions specifically going over the changing nature of who was using opiates and what opiates they were using, though the majority of the interview really focused on the context around these changes. I found the history of the evolution of medicine and psychiatry to provide some really helpful context for understanding how we think about mental health in the U.S. today. In addition to researching the history of medicine and public health, particularly in the context of opiate addiction, Carolyn was also founder of Prevention Point Pittsburgh. Prevention Point is a harm reduction services organization that includes a needle exchange. I enjoyed the discussion as we covered a variety of topics that really helped set the stage for opiate usage in the first half of the 19th century. Without further ado, here's the interview. Do you mind just introducing yourself with your name and what you do? Certainly. My name is Carolyn Acker. I'm a professor emerita of history at Carnegie Mellon University. I'm a historian of medicine and public health. My work has focused mostly on drug users, the drugs they use, the experiences they seek, the consequences they they, uh, experience, and policy and research on drugs. I also have been involved in harm reduction and needle exchange work for close to 30 years now. To start the conversation, do you mind just mentioning some of the origins of vice that were kind of taking root in the 1890s that really set the stage for the bulk of what your book focuses on? Yes. Um, The 1890s were um, a time of dramatic, the beginning of dramatic change in the populations of American cities. It was the period uh, that began to see enormous waves of immigration from parts of Europe and that would be southern Europe, especially Italy, and eastern Europe, including um, parts of Russia. And that population, uh, many of them were Jews fleeing prejudice and oppression. The Italians were predominantly fleeing poverty. And they arrived in American cities and began settling in densely crowded neighborhoods, often organized around uh, a particular ethnic group. For example, in the city of Pittsburgh, there, there's a neighborhood called Polish Hill, Poles tended to want to settle near each other. They had a shared language, uh, shared experiences. Uh, they often you know, would write back to family, say, come on over. And so they, they created a Polish neighborhood. Bloomfield was a predominantly Italian neighborhood and, and so forth. 
the, the uh, Russians, Russian Jews largely settled in the Hill District, uh, a neighborhood which later became predominantly black. These were newcomers, they were poor, they were members of the working class, and there was a group of the established population of these American cities, largely eastern, northeastern cities, white middle class and upper middle class people who were largely descended from uh, the British Isles, uh, to some extent from Ireland, although the Irish also in their time had been perceived as, as a, a lesser immigrant group. And in this group, some concerns formed about what was happening uh, in these uh, poor working class neighborhoods. Um, people like entertainment. And one of the things that was happening in these neighborhoods was that entertainment venues were being developed. Pool halls, for example, a good example. Dance halls. Um, music historians know. I mean, so another influence is African Americans uh, who had begun in small numbers moving north in the, in the um, 1890s. But um, African music began to become very popular. Uh, Scott Joplin was composing rags in, in the late 1890s and into the early 1900s. And this, this ragtime music, called ragtime because it has a, a syncopated rhythm that's, that's ragged, um, was being played in piano. African Americans didn't have access to middle class living rooms and, and, you know, polished audiences. Many of them were making a living playing a piano in brothels. So you had a, a very rich, complex, cultural mix of music, dancing, pool calls, various forms of amusement and entertainment, and some of it including what was not yet illicit but would become illicit, and that was um, commercial sex. And there began to be uh, specific patterns of drug use in these groups. The white middle-class reformers, the people we call progressives, and thinking of the progressive era as dating from about 1890 to the, the outbreak of World War I, a group of people took on a, a reform crusade to try to improve the behavior of these people whom they felt were engaging in what they called vicious behavior. In other words, vice is uh, the root of the word vicious, and they truly um, you know, we think of vice now as just sort of minor things that we do that are wrong, but it, it had a much more powerful connotation at the time. There were powerful concerns about the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, especially syphilis. And uh, there was a lot of concern about alcohol use. There, the, the temperance movement was very concerned about working class families and the sort of image of a man, working class man, on Friday getting his paycheck and drinking it all up at the bar and then that, bringing nothing home for the poor wife and kids to, uh, to feed them with. So they, they aimed these concerns at a series of behaviors that they thought were destructive of, of good, healthy society. And actually, just focusing in on the the racial and social component, if I'm not mistaken, some of the earliest laws were actually focused on uh, Chinese communities oh, or yeah. Chinatowns and their access to opium or smoking opium specifically. So yeah. aside from some of the elements that you mentioned uh, when it came to the initial immigration from Europe and you know the relationship with African Americans, especially through the entertainment uh, lens, what other kind of racial and social components Components were very relevant in setting the stage for more intense legislation to come. They're they're inextricably linked. Um, every drug that was outlawed under American law had some kind of an association with a specific racial or ethnic group and class group as well. 
the Chinese, especially in the West Coast, like in San Francisco, uh, were the first racial group to be heavily stigmatized in an association with a drug, a drug that it was not used in mainstream society, and that was opium. Uh, the Chinese were charged with having opium dens, luring white women into sex slavery, corrupting children, and so forth. And California was the first state to pass uh, a restriction law restricting uh, Chinese immigration, and that was in the 1870s, you know, close to 15 years before the, the beginning of the Progressive Era immigration. Cocaine, one of the drugs that became a target of concern in the early 1900s, was largely associated with African Americans. And uh, heroin had a less direct association with an ethnic group, but very much an association with the the range of European immigrants of the progressive era and a very strong class prejudice associated with it. So uh, it, it's no accident that the drugs singled out for uh, banning were drugs that were associated with specific uh, social groups that were discriminated against by mainstream white uh, northern European-descended Americans. And then another kind of thread of change that was happening alongside this was in the evolution of medicine, psychology, psychiatry, uh, kind of a lot of the sciences, especially as they relate to health and well-being. Indeed. Uh, and one interesting example that you mentioned during World War I, uh, folks with a knowledge of psychology were kind of being drafted uh, to help understand who in turn to bring into the war effort and who to not. Um, right. So would you mind also commenting on some of the general changes from the medicinal and scientific side that were happening alongside the, the social changes that we were just talking about? Oh, big question. Um, well, let, <laughs> let me start with the uh, World War I focus, and then I'll move to the, the uh, scientific research. Um, and I'll make a distinction between psychologists and psychiatrists. Uh, psychologists were not part of the effort to determine who was not fit to serve. What they were uh, recruited to do was take the recently developed uh, intelligence quotient, IQ tests, and develop them into tools that the military could use to help triage soldiers into appropriate functions. And that was quite separate from the psychiatrist project, which was trying to figure out whom we should not let into the Army because they were likely going to be a problem. They were going to have some sort of psychiatric meltdown, um, some sort of illness, or they, they were actually ill or they weren't really, but they were sort of fragile enough that exposed to some trauma, they, they might become mentally ill, might have a, a breakdown. And the concerns were, two: one, to have the, the Army and the military function at, at its best, and two, anybody once in the Army who then was identified as sick would be eligible to collect government benefits for the rest of their life, and that would be a cost that the government didn't want to take on. Throughout the 19th century, psychiatrists worked entirely within mental hospitals, and decisions about who was going to send people to mental hospitals were often families who had a relative whose behavior was simply out of control, they couldn't deal with it anymore, courts who... Uh, judges decided that someone was insane and, and needed care uh, and needed to be removed from the community for their own sake and the, and the health of the community. And so psychiatrists were, their job was to create regimens of living and care that were supposed to help people get better. They were not involved in diagnostics. For, for listeners, a mental hospital at this point in time, uh, could you just give a sense of who who is realistically being sent there and, and, and what that might look like relative to today? Uh, well, there's a range. There were large public hospitals, 
often maybe a state would have one of these hospitals located in sort of a central rural area. They could be very large, um, and uh, they were tax, you know, supported by taxpayers. Um, and a wide range of kinds of people could be sent there. There were uh, aspects of prejudice. For example, there were homes for the feeble-minded, which were separate from the the, the asylums for the, the mentally ill, uh, but there was a strong racial component and who was uh, deemed mentally deficient or feeble-minded. But the, these hospitals would have to take anyone who was sent there. There were public hospitals. But there were also private institutions where the wealthier could send their sick relatives uh, where the conditions would obviously be better, the patients' families would pay for it. Sort of a, a simplified description of the rationale was to try to create a kind of calm, sort of farm-like life with simple routines, uh, have people out in, in the field areas of the hospital complex growing crops, having them do the simple household functions, and just to try to create a calming influence with simple, regular activities to sort of order a disordered mind. Now, some people uh, mentally ill are so out of control that they almost have to be restrained and, and certainly were seen as having to be restrained in some cases in these hospitals. So in some cases, there were locked wards and, and people strapped to beds and things like that. So there's quite a range of kinds of care based on how well the patient was able to adapt to the routine that the hospital was offering. And so they, these psychiatrists, they weren't doing diagnostics. They were more or less shut off from the, the big real world. And so they did not have the qualifications to do what the Army wanted. Meanwhile, from a separate strain coming out of neurology was a group of physicians, and psychiatrists are physicians, who began to think about a different approach to thinking about mental illness. Uh, there was a thought that uh, maybe some sort of lesion in the nervous system could be a cause of mental illness. This was also a time we were learning a lot about syphilis. Syphilis is a chronic disease that over decades, when there was no cure, could go through a series of stages, one of which was an eventual form of dementia. Well, if syphilis can cause dementia, if we can find a cure for syphilis, then maybe we can prevent that. Um, so there, there was a, a drive to look for causes of and better understanding of manifestations of mental illness. And from this emerged the new psychiatry that was almost in its infancy when uh, the military in World War I needed these you know, barely sketched out diagnostic skills to try to determine who was fit to, to enter the military and who was not. Another aspect of dramatic change in this period was, and, and we can look at syphilis again as an example, beginning about the 1870s, bacteriological discoveries were launched and began to revolutionize understanding of, of disease, of communicable diseases, the understanding that microorganisms cause these diseases and that if you could figure out uh, how an organism would get from one body to another, you maybe could interrupt that transmission and prevent disease. And an important example is typhoid fever. And in the city of Pittsburgh, every summer you had typhoid fever epidemics. Typhoid fever is transmitted by, it's called the fecal oral route. The organism leaves the body when the person defecates, goes into water if it's flushed into a sewer, and if water from that sewer system then becomes part of the drinking water, people are swallowing the uh, germ and getting the disease, and that's exactly what was driving these annual epidemics of typhoid fever. And this was figured out in, I believe, about 1898-99, and it took the Pittsburgh City Council until 1912 to vote the funds 
to ensure that instead of taking water in for the water system in the Allegheny River downstream of where the sewer water was being dumped, to only draw drinking water from upstream from where the the sewage was being dumped into the river. Uh, And then magically, you know, you look at the graph and these every year, every year, epidemic, epidemic, and suddenly it's flat. Uh, So that was the initial way that they were able to take advantage of what we were learning about disease causation. And we also learned more about person-to-person transmission, like in the case of syphilis, sexually transmitted disease. I'm not going to remember the years exactly right here, uh, but the researcher Paul Ehrlich in um, Germany discovered um, the organism that uh, caused syphilis, and he uh, developed a test for it, and he developed a drug that was not a perfect cure, but did a, a very good job of suppressing system symptoms and, and reducing the likelihood of transmission to another person. Um, so we began to have the era of the hope that we could find drugs to cure or prevent transmission of infectious diseases. And that began a drive of, of drug research that had chemists in laboratories turning out chemical compound after compound after compound, testing them in animals, seeing what kind of results they could get, and trying to find something that would be called, in Ehrlich's terms, a magic bullet, something, a weapon that you could put into the human body and magically would only seek out the the pathogen and kill it and not harm the human host in any way. And in terms of the evolution of drugs, using that as a, as a segue to come back to opiates, the, the late 1800s also saw the development of heroin and in turn an overall transition in both the kind of opiates that people were using and who was actually using them. Yeah. Do you mind speaking a little bit to those changes? Certainly. And um, and so to take opium, the source of first morphine and then later heroin, a drug whose use goes back as far as we know anything about human history, it's been a very central drug. Opium is is an amazing drug in the following uh, way. It relieves the symptoms of what were the major causes of morbidity and mortality throughout much of human history. It relieves pain, first and foremost. It relieves cough, important symptom of tuberculosis, which well into the 19th century, late 19th century, was the in year out, the leading cause of death in Europe and North America and much of the world. It relieves constipation, I mean, it causes constipation, but relieves diarrhea. Cholera epidemics punctuated the 19th century with a horrible disease that you would go from being sick to dying a horrible death within two or three days. Uh, and this was another uh, fecal oral transmitted drug. Um, and it w- the epidemics were hitting American cities and European cities uh, throughout the 19th century. And But the diarrhea could be somewhat relieved by morphine. So this was a prime weapon in the, in the fight against disease. And morphine was, in fact, the first compound to be isolated from a plant origin medicine in the very early 1800s. And it was perhaps the most widely used medicine in 19th century American medicine. I've been doing research recently on um, the history of the hypodermic syringe as a medical instrument, and there are whole volumes on the hypodermic uses of morphine to treat a wide range of things. So this was a very prominent drug. And always, you know, as chemists were continually looking for better drugs, and, and I will say that this industry of chemical research was centered in Germany in the 19th century. Germans were one of the first countries to industrialize. They, they had coal, which they used to fuel um, steel factories. 
And then the coal, which is a, a carbon-based substance, would leave an aftermath called coal tar that was just this rich mix of organic compounds. And chemists began analyzing those and looking for ones that might be useful as medicines. And at some point, they tweaked the heroin, uh, the morphine molecule, and found a way to uh, diacetylmorphine. I think it's connect one morphine to two acetyls or maybe two morphines to one acetyl. I will have to look that one up. But that produced heroin. And heroin uh, is a more powerful a version of morphine. It has a, for a given dose, it has a stronger analgesic effect and, and like morphine, also effect of just inducing a profound sense of well-being and sometimes absolutely euphoria, but particularly a just sense of calm and well-being and all is right with the world, whatever the actual circumstances of life might be. Heroin was not as widely used as a medicine in the U.S., uh, because it wasn't really that much different from morphine. But it came into use as what we now call a recreational drug in these urban working-class neighborhoods where, like, maybe, you know, 14-, 15-year-old boys in the pool hall were sniffing heroin while playing pool. And a lot of it was being sniffed rather than uh, injected. Now, one of the dynamics of addiction with a drug like an opiate is you start out not needing very much to get a nice, strong effect. But if you use it over time, your body develops tolerance to it. That is to say, it begins to require larger doses of the drug to achieve the same effect you could get with a lesser dose before. So people would begin escalating their doses. And then another issue is if use becomes chronic so that it's uninterrupted, the body develops, it, it adjusts, the brain adjusts to the constant presence of this drug by sort of scaling back some of our innate brain mechanisms for feeling good about the world, which are supposed to be actual responses to conditions and not just a, a, an induced state. When you get to that stage, if suddenly your supply of heroin is cut off, you go into a withdrawal syndrome, and that is the body trying to adjust back to the normal state, but starting from this place of, of disturbance, and so there are a number of very uncomfortable symptoms. Pain, nausea, sweating, muscle cramps, shaking, and this can last seven days or so and be profoundly unpleasant and is instantly relieved with the next dose of, of heroin or morphine. And so one of the things that the uh, psychiatrists or that the military was concerned about was identifying heroin addicts, not just the mentally ill, but the addicted as well, because if they got into the army and then suddenly their supplies been cut off and they go into withdrawal, uh-oh, the army, A, no longer has a fit soldier, and B, is going to be responsible for the care for that person forever. And so this pattern of use came to the attention of the reformers I've talked about and very much a target of concern. Sex and drugs, you know, they were being practiced out of control and the, the progressive reformers very much wanted to eliminate the use of opiates. Uh, some of them wanted to eliminate the use of alcohol. They wanted to eliminate prostitution, whether they framed it as white slavery where innocent women were sort of lured into it or whether it was a reflection of the debased character of the woman. And so in this context, the psychiatric research was very much influenced by the social values that these progressive era reformers had about what was proper behavior and, and the notion of being a well-adjusted person to, in their view, 
well adjusted to the values of the, the white, middle, and upper middle class of sobriety and regular habits and probably good religious practice and, and so forth. And I guess just to, to, to be clear at this point also, I know you mentioned uh, alcohol, certain drugs like opiates, but the, the types of things that were being restricted weren't just substances being used. Uh, it also extended to things like gambling and, and like yes. you mentioned, the dancing hall. Yeah. So it was just beyond the actual usage, right? Absolutely. There was uh, an attempt. And interestingly, in more recent formulations uh, of how we might think about addiction in contrast to how it was being developed in this earlier period, behaviors like gambling that can become compulsive and out of control uh, are considered possibly addictive. But morphine and heroin could produce this pattern of habitual use, and then this withdrawal syndrome became well-recognized. And so there was an attempt to outlaw this whole complex of behaviors, drug use, drinking, body music and body dancing, uh, outlaw gambling, and uh, try to get people to have forms, milder forms of recreation, I guess. And there were, I mean, at the local level, in many localities, laws were passed against all of these things. It took 15 to 20-plus years to really outlaw certain drugs at the national level. And speaking of the outlawing, on the local level, as you mentioned, there were some very clear import-export laws, possession laws, things focused very clearly on the substance. But in terms of the Harrison Narcotic Act, and the type of federal response that was seen, how did that differ? Well, there, I mean, so there, you're right. The first federal attempts were uh, attempting to limit the importation of drugs. So in 1909, there was uh, the Congress passed a law to try to limit the amount of opium imported into the country to the amount that needed for truly medical uses. The, the Harrison Act, you know, we didn't quite have a legal mechanism, even though the cities and, and some states were doing it, outlawing possession and use and sale and so forth of some substances. At the federal level, you know, that the federal government is constrained in some of what it can do. Some th- powers are left to the states. The regulation of medical practice in many ways was left to the states. You have to get your license to practice medicine from the state government, not the federal government. And so Congress was aware that there were some limitations on what they could do, and they weren't sure that they could, from the federal level, enact a ban. So they created this funny kind of tax law that required you know, payment of a nominal tax anytime someone purchased. And, and oh, let me just add in a bit more context. When these drugs were legal, you could go into any pharmacy and buy them. You, were not, you weren't stuck in a black market necessarily. So th- this uh, law required that anytime anyone purchased morphine, whether it was a physician purchasing for his own practice or her own practice, or whether it was a patient presenting a prescription at a pharmacy, any sale involved a recording of that sale, a collection of this minimal bit of tax, and no other use was allowed except that which flowed through these channels. And so that was a way to try to confine use to medically authorized use and not allow any more. And this act included several drugs. It included cocaine, it included chloral hydrate, a, a drug that um, can get you high and was in, in was popular in, in some places in the 19th century, and maybe one or two more, I don't recall. And so that was the, the legal mechanism. And it just did not quite bring about the desired effect. And so then you had, in I believe 1921 and 24, additional laws 
one of which banned any use of heroin whatsoever. One of the dilemmas facing governments trying to regulate use of drugs that both had legitimate medical uses and a market, you know, among pleasure seekers or people who were simply kind of self-medicating for psychological ills or pain, um, physical pain, uh, is that you need some of this stuff. You can't just outlaw it altogether because doctors need it and patients need it. So this was a, a difficult dilemma for government to deal with, and the system did not work terribly well. But physicians, meanwhile, never – American physicians did not particularly adopt the use of heroin. Heroin remained very much associated with the, the working-class neighborhood amusement scene. And so it, that was an easy drug for Congress to ban the use of categorically because physicians weren't going to mind. They, they had morphine. So that, that that dilemma made it difficult to to regulate effectively regulate the you know to confine the drugs to the legitimate medical uses. In terms of the idea of creating a less addictive version of an opiate, uh-huh. how did that play a factor as the twenties progressed into the thirties? Okay, just to pull back the lens historically a bit, the great majority of these new pharmaceutical drugs coming you know, in the U.S. were being imported from Germany. Well, all of a sudden, when we entered World War I, we were at war with Germany. And, and actually, German companies had manufacturing factories in the U.S. and were producing the medicines, but they were German companies. So when the war happened, Germany cut off ex- any exports of drugs to the U.S. because we were now enemies at war. And the, the U.S. government, in turn, seized the factories, the German factories, and national, they didn't nationalize them, but they turned them into American-owned businesses. And so you now, for the first time, had a substantial American-owned infrastructure of drug development and drug research. And physicians and legislators thought that we, because we can get different ranges of effects, you know, increase therapeutic efficacy, reduce or pair away undesired side effects, through continued manipulation of molecular structure, um, let's see what we can do. And in fact, as we came out of World War I, the research-based pharmacology was just an emerging discipline in our country at that time. And one of the leaders in that field, a pharmacologist named Reed Hunt, uh, made a long list of projects that he felt that pharmaceutical researchers should get involved in to try to find uh, cures for diseases and other desirable drugs. And one of the things he listed was to try to find a variant on the morphine molecule that would retain the pain-relieving quality but not have the addictive quality. So this was the idea of a search for a non-addicting opioid analgesic. Meanwhile, this was also the time, a period similar to our own in some interesting ways, in that we had the rise of some industrial behemoths like Standard Oil of New Jersey, or it's the Standard Oil Company before it was divided up into the separate Standard Oils, founded and headed by John D. Rockefeller, who made an immense fortune, and Andrew Carnegie, who came from Scotland to Pittsburgh and launched the steel industry. And uh, both of these industrial leaders, having amassed enormous amounts of wealth, and one quickly thinks of parallels like Jeff Bezos and and William uh, Gates today, they wanted to be benevolent and give back to society. And we know that Carnegie did it partly by uh, founding the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh, but also funding libraries, the building of libraries across the country. Uh, John D. Rockefeller 
had a number of interests, and his son became interested in reform. His son, John D. Rockefeller Jr., took on the job of trying to manage this part of the family fortune that was going to go into philanthropy. We've talked about sort of vice and and vicious behavior and, and what could metaphorically be thought of as dirty behavior. There was a very serious rise of concern about prostitution in this period, in good part because it drove, the, the, according to reformers, it drove the spread of syphilis. And the, the nightmare picture is a young man sowing his wild oats, he's unmarried, yeah, he, has, you know, he visits a brothel from time to time, unknowingly catches syphilis, then he marries, and then he infects his wife. And then because the syphilis it comes in through the, uh, the genitalia, if the wife gets pregnant, the infant passing through her vagina is exposed to syphilis and might be born dead or, or ill. And this was just, you know, created a kind of moral panic in, in these reformers. And so prostitution became a very important target of reform. And the, the movement to address in this era of euphemisms, to address this drive was called social hygiene. In other words, let's clean up society. And the Rockefeller Foundation funded, or the Rockefeller family created and funded, I think in 1911, a Bureau of Social Hygiene that took on the issue of how do we deal with prostitution. And it, it had a research component to it. What can we learn about prostitution? What can we learn about how syphilis is transmitted and so forth? So meanwhile, so it, and they, they continued this interest into the 1920s. Meanwhile, at Philadelphia General Hospital, large municipal hospital, the kind of municipal hospital, public hospital that had to take any patient who showed up, whether they could pay or not, it had a narcotics ward where patients addicted to morphine or heroin could check in and uh, basically go through withdrawal with some forms of palliation, uh, some things to help them feel better. And then uh, once they were, you know, the withdrawal was over, they were pronounced cured and sent back out where they often became addicted again and then came back into the hospital at some point. And I'm not quite remembering how it came about. The Bureau of Social Hygiene decided to fund some research on the patients at the uh, Philadelphia General Narcotics Ward. And for three years, 1926, 27, and 28, they, had, uh, they did this meticulous record-keeping on the patients who were there. And this included a complete medical history and details of the ways the, the patient was treated while there. And then a psychiatrist named Richardson would do these elaborate interview, life interviews, you know, educational history, work history, family history, uh, ethnic history, history, uh, these, these just complete life stories. A psychologist would, would give them kind of psych- psychological examinations and record the, the results, the evaluations based on those. And as a historian, I am profoundly grateful because these records are at the College of Physicians in Philadelphia where I was able to mine them to reconstruct the lives of many of these patients as they struggled to deal with their, with their addiction and, and lead their lives. And the hope was that they were going to learn something about addiction that would lead to some sort of breakthrough, some sort of cure, some sort of preventive. Uh, that didn't quite happen. They, they did get a lot of interesting um, information on the pharmacological side and sort of the understanding of the uh, process of, of withdrawal and, and uh, you know, 
clinically, but not really any breakthrough understanding of addiction. Meanwhile, on a separate front, the Bureau was interested in funding, helping to fund the search for an analgesic that would, not, that would replace morphine without being addictive. And so they were funding uh, research on that front, chemical research. And then in, I'd have to remind myself the exact dates, I think it may be 1932, at a certain point the government formed the National Research Council. And this work was picked up by the National Research Council and continued. And the, they continued producing new drugs, one candidate after another, good analgesia. First they test for analgesic potency. Yay, good. Now we test for, does it involve tolerance and withdrawal? Oh, darn, yes, it does. So candidate after candidate failed, although some were maybe marginally a little better than others. Meanwhile, uh, addicts continued to be thought of as useful objects of study. And by this time... Heroin had been, by the, by the time we get into the 30s, heroin had been illegal uh, since the t- uh, early to mid-20s, and addicts were criminals by definition. Heroin users were by definition criminals, and they were piling up in jails uh, and prisons. At the same time, there, there was an understanding that there was a disease-like quality to this condition of addiction. So the, the, the U.S. Public Health Service saw this as an important public health problem, and they wanted to try to figure out how do we best deal with this? What is the best response to dealing with a criminal who also is suffering a, a kind of medical condition that we don't understand perfectly? And so they put a psychiatrist named Lawrence Kolb to work on studying this issue. And Kolb interviewed hundreds and hundreds of addicts about their experiences. And he came up with a, a classification system. One was what he termed innocent addicts. And those would be people my age, you know, in their 70s. Uh, I'm, now, the rest of this doesn't describe me. Frail, ill, suffering a lot of pain. Uh, and their humane doctors would keep them on steady doses of morphine to just help control that. Well, that's okay. We'll allow that. But then he had these other classifications, um, one of which was um, people who were fundamentally alcoholics but then got into morphine in an attempt to control their alcohol use and and. Morphine use can be much less disruptive of life than alcohol use, and so some preferred the morphine to alcohol. But he had this one class, class two, which he found was the most numerous, and he called them the psychopathic addicts. And psychopath didn't then mean quite what it means today. You know, now we talk about psychopathic as being like a mad killer who, you know, kills dozens of people. Psychopathy simply meant mental illness psycho of the psyche, pathy, sickness. So um, they, the psychopath, being a psychopath simply meant there was something wrong with your, with your brain, your mind. And he defined them as engaging in vice, of being exactly these vicious characters that the progressive er- reformers were concerned about. The, the, the boys playing pool, the, or the young men playing pool, the, the uh, sex workers and their customers. Um, people engaging in vice and using this drug strictly for pleasure to augment the pleasures of the other vices and so forth. And so he he essentialized this character definition. There was there's no way to not be the you know the psychopath. You are it's it's uh, it's a, it's an essential characteristic of you. Um, so you can't be cured from it. The best we can do is see to is to sever your connection with the drugs. Meanwhile, these people are criminals. So he developed the idea 
of a special prison for heroin addicts who had been arrested and charged and convicted, where it would be a prison and they would be isolated, but it would also be a hospital. It would be a hybrid prison hospital. And the model was quite a bit modeled on the 19th century mental asylum that we talked about earlier. The original one was built outside of Lexington, Kentucky. It was a large, large institution with lots of buildings and outdoor space. It was called a farm. It was called the Lexington Narcotic Farm, drawing on that 19th century notion that a, a pastoral life, a quiet, calming rural life could help restore mental balance and calm to a person. And it, and it also it, it had a factory aspect to it. Um, inmates manufactured uh, furniture that would be uh, used in the prison system. Um, and so that you, when you came in, you spent a, a certain amount of time in a sort of clinical space going through withdrawal. And then when you were stable, you were released into the general population. And this came to house thousands of people. Now, we, we have talked about how, so in, in this period of, you know, from ragtime in the late 19th century to Louis um, Armstrong in 1913, um, you know, beginning to play the trumpet, and the emergence of jazz, which by the 1920s, um, you know, was just this vibrant musical scene that had come out of this bad social space. Well, there were a lot of jazz musicians at Lexington, and there was amazing jazz bands um, uh, made up of inmates there. Um, and so it was, it was a very complex institution. Um, and it had bodies that could be studied and people who could be studied. And so they were, to some extent, objects of research. A researcher named Clifton Himmelsbach, um, first working at an at a army base in Kansas where addicts were sent for a while before Lexington was built, and then at Lexington, he made very careful observations of withdrawal to chart the precise onset over time of symptoms and their rising and falling severity and different, you know, severities of withdrawal uh, based on dosages that people were addicted to and so forth. And so he developed this framework for understanding withdrawal. Um, so these, these people became research subjects. From none of this did an effective drug cure uh, arise, high rates of recidivism after release. So there was this enormous investment with, one might say, ambiguous results as, at best. And to take a step back, in terms of how the changes that were coming up beginning in the 20s all the way through you know the creation of uh, of the facility at Lexington Kentucky alongside the kind of changes that were happening from a legal perspective with the Harrison Narcotics Act uh, Narcotics Act and then the Supreme Court decisions that came through in the other acts what were the impacts for the actual users sort of what what did that market change look like and the, the true authority on this is David Courtright in his book, Dark Paradise. Um, and w one of his insights was to recognize that different individual forms of opioids were typically used by different demographic groups. So morphine was largely used by white patients, doctors' patients, physicians' patients, many of them women. Um, in the 19th century, and, and again in this white middle and upper middle class world, men could drink, but it was not considered polite for women to drink. And so the uh, scenario of 
the dinner party with both sexes present, and then at some point, I think it's either the women leave and the men start drinking, or the men leave to go to another room and start drinking, but the women don't drink. Well, and women, this was a complicated time to be a woman. I mean, we we were increasingly educating women, and yet giving them very few avenues to make use of that education in any socially engaged way outside of a domestic role in the home. Meanwhile, the, the prosperous had servants in the house, and so there was sort of idleness, and some women did very much get involved in community volunteering kinds of projects, but there, there was a lot of just kind of angst about their roles in, in many cases. And so they'd go to the doctor, doctor, I don't know, with this kind of vague complaint, and doctors found that prescribing morphine would calm these women down. In the South, there was a particularly strong pattern of prescribing morphine to white patients. But the heroin, as we've discussed, was being used by these ethnically diverse working class groups in cities and was not so much a part of medicine. And so that was a distinct, mostly male group. And so there was a cohort became addicted from the late 1900s in through the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And they were a generational cohort who aged out of their heroin addiction as they moved into late life. And in part because of the passage of the law and less availability, a new users, a new cohort of users did not step up in anywhere near the same numbers uh, to take up the use. So there was a real waning in use of heroin um, in the, the interwar period, especially the 1930s. And the use began to pick up again after World War II in the context in, in the increasingly segregated black um, urban neighborhoods. Uh, and became then increasingly associated with African Americans. So that's that's uh, the changing kind of pattern of use over time. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there are any particular takeaways from studying this era to particularly help contextualize and better understand, uh, and hopefully better uh, or come out of in a better way in terms of the opioid crisis that we've been dealing with for the last few decades? It was not. It was not illegal. It was not illegal before 1914, except in some localities, and so the chances were very good that the heroin you got was pharmaceutically produced heroin, um, and the likelihood of adulteration and so forth immediately became greater once uh, the black market was in place, um, and then eventually you had labs in Asia producing heroin right at the point of origin from the opium plants, or labs in in Turkey. Um, and uh, then it flowed entirely through the black market with all kinds of possibilities of contamination. Um, today, we face a serious problem in that uh, you know the continued pharmaceutical research resulted in the drug fentanyl, which is an opioid that is massively more powerful than heroin. And some heroin users with very high tolerance can take it and, in fact, are kind of glad when they get it. But for many, it's it's toxic and is very much a part of what has been driving this horrendous wave of overdose deaths we've been witnessing in this country for close to 20 years now. Um, When drugs are illegal, they are more dangerous. If we could find a way to make drug use legal, I've just read an interesting article by Dan Baum that appeared in Harper's Magazine in 2016. um, And... Uh, it, it looks at the uh, the arguments for legalizing and regulating the sale of illicit drugs, what are now illicit drugs, heroin, cocaine, etc. And the, the model that he likes best is that, well, in Pennsylvania, you have the state store system. You have um, 
the state monopolizes the sale of alcohol and is able to maintain certain kinds of control on its sale. And alcohol is so widely used in our society uh, and has so much social acceptance, you know, it can be advertised and all that. Um, but heroin, cocaine, some of these drugs that are used by much smaller minorities of people, and that um, even though ethnographic and, and epidemiological research shows that the vast majority of people who use heroin, cocaine, you know, some try it once or a few times and don't use it, or they just use it occasionally. Um, the, the, the ones who become dependent and for whom use is problematic, who use the highest volumes of the drug, you know, that are in society, but are a very small share of the total number of users. But they're, they're the, the target of concern. If you had a state store system where uh, people could buy in known doses, there would be no adulterants. You would know exactly what you were getting. There would be, perhaps be a limit on how much you could buy at any one time. You, we would have benefit from tax revenues. We would no longer be paying for this huge and um, fruitless, expensive attempt through law enforcement to, to wipe out the drug trade and drug use. Um, if we have, we, we have begun to work on the overdose problem in terms of the availability of naloxone, a uh, brand name Narcan, the drug that, pull, that reverses an overdose to opioids, but is utterly harmless if given to someone who has no opioids in their system. Um, this is, this is the, the response to overdose issue. Um, but also we do a better job of preventing overdose if people know the doses they're getting, if people know there's no fentanyl in that, in that heroin. Um, and meanwhile, these stores would also be resources. If someone is interested in treatment, there's a way to be connected to treatment there. There are ample supply. You know, needle exchange has been going on for 30 years now. Um, I was handing out needles in a uh, street in San Rafael, California, that was peopled on Saturday evenings by these achingly young prostitutes, and I would give them condoms. Um, and, and we, you know, when we had needles for needle users, and so needle exchange is now very well established. And um, in, so the, the, a harm reduction model of running these stores where that you have access to safe injection equipment, um, at good access to Narcan, uh, counseling available, triage into treatment readily available, that we would have a, a substantially reduced levels of harms. Now, Jonathan Calkins at Carnegie Mellon at the Heinz School co-authored an article with, I'm blanking on his co-author's name, uh, it appeared in the Journal of American Journal of Public Health years ago. He said it would be much smarter, you know, we, we do all this counting of how many people use drugs and how many the annual high school surveys and all this. He said, it, they said it would be far more useful to count harms associated with drug use as a measure of, you know, how concerned we should be than simple use. And so that focus on reducing harms and doing whatever reduces harms without worrying so much about use is the way we should go. The final uh, short question is just, do you have any specific uh, works or organizations or anything you want to highlight in the context of, uh, you know, the current landscape of being able to better understand or better deal with uh, drugs? Prevention Point Pittsburgh. Um, I co-founded Prevention Point Pittsburgh in 1995 um, with James Crow. Um, we were illegal for seven years or so. Uh, we set up a table at the corner of Forbes and Gist, a card table, and started handing out syringes and then gradually adding other kinds of supplies. Um, 
we were tolerated. Um, we were nice-looking white people. I especially was, you know, a white-haired lady in my 40s, white lady. Um, and we were doing policy work above ground the whole time. And finally, in 2002, the um, county, the, the county Department of Public Health, um, Allegheny County Health Department, uh, authorized us uh, to be legal. And then later, county council legalized us. Um, and so 2002 is when we became legal. Around that time, Alice Bell joined the staff. And in Chicago, the um, Chicago Recovery Alliance, headed by Dan Big, had um, pioneered doing overdose prevention and, and response and pioneered the distribution of Narcan to needle exchange participants. And Alice Bell, one of, one of my former graduate students, Alex Bennett, Alex Bennett, wrote the grant that got Prevention Point its first money to buy Narcan, and Alice Bell launched and developed and still manages the, that overdose program to this day. And um, you know, she goes all around the county area, multi-county area, giving talks about overdose and overdose prevention and seeing to, you know, facilitating channels of Narcan distribution. And, of course, we distribute it freely at Prevention Point Pittsburgh. Um, so that's an example of an organization that, that started with an idea that we knew was good and then did, did not have uh, broad acceptance and saw it through to the period where now it, you know, it has six full-time employees. We had this wonderful guy, Ron Johnson, who worked there. He was an African-American man who had a, you know, a past that involved drug use and incarceration, and it completely cleaned up. And just, uh, I mean, he, he, sadly he died, uh, maybe it's close to two years ago now, um, and I wrote a, a piece about him, and I called, I said it was titled Ron Johnson, My Hero, My Friend. Um, for his last two or three years that he was working with Prevention Point as a prevention case manager, where if you had any interest in connecting with services, he was, he was the one who would work with you. Each year, he would get over 20% of the people who came to Prevention Point into treatment for their drug use. So that, that's, you know, that's kind of, it's, it's a... It's a holistic harm reduction organization that has just, I think, enjoyed wonderful success. We have, they now have a wound care nurse. You know, when you repeatedly inject at the same site, you can get abscess infections. Uh, they have a wound care nurse there who um, can look at those and treat them. Uh, they have a site, a fixed site in, I think, four locations now in Pittsburgh, and they take a van into the uh, Hill District once a week as well. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs in Society is written and produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits to Blue Dot Sessions on the music and BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sound, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter, at Drugs History, or over email, History of D-I-S, that's History of Drugs in Society, History of D-I-S at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and rate on iTunes. Be well, and speak soon.